It's the kind of experience you hope will define a father and son relationship. The dad shares something with the son, hoping he will see firsthand that there is still a kid that lives inside the father, and the son will have a momentary recognition of their commonality. And in that shining moment when age and any complex family dynamics are obliterated, a thin chain of connection is forged. And years later, there will be a fond remembrance of that moment and periodic checkpoints to affirm that indeed, that chain is still intact. It was with that grand vision in mind that I took my 10-year-old son to see Spider-Man turn off the dark on Broadway in March of 2011. Uh, Okay, not really. I mean, I'm sure there was something like that going on, but mostly I couldn't think of anyone better to share a bonkers superhero on stage experience with than my preteen son. By the way, this is Chasing Phantom, a podcast about Broadway's longest running shows, and I am David Timberline. And for anyone who has listened before, you can already tell that this episode I'm doing something a little different. I usually have a guest on to talk about one of Broadway's longest running shows, but there are only so many ways to talk about Turn Off the Dark, and I wasn't particularly excited about any of them. A huge misbegotten folly that still stands as the most expensive Broadway show ever produced, Spider-Man is an outlier, an anomaly, and a unique moonshot of a show as far as Broadway is concerned. It's like a visitor from a different cultural planet. Though it managed to make its way above a thousand performances, which is a traditional mark of success, a thousand and sixty-six performances to be precise, it's hard to think of Spider-Man as anything but a disaster. Capitalized at $75 million, the production reportedly ended up losing $60 million. The human damage was arguably worse. At least five people associated with the production were seriously injured during the run. One ended up needing, and there is no way to sugarcoat these words, surgery that involved, quote, unspecified amputations, unquote. It's easy now to see that the production was doomed from the start. Hindsight, 2020, etc., etc. But when people are successful, phenomenally successful, singularly triumphant in their chosen field, it's also easy to overlook the clues, the warning signs, the clear indications that there are limits to that success. There are big, obvious seeds of destruction growing within even the most talented and revered people in their chosen field. Their ability to avoid self-emulation often involves keeping those seeds dormant. I mean, we knew there was something up with Elon Musk even before Twitter, right? Since I'm like an avid Twitter user, I could detect that like something's not right here. In addition to the potential for that ego-forward kind of crash and burn, there is the danger inherent in the quote-unquote supergroup. When you take volatile, creative, powerful people and mash them up, not really knowing whether their strengths will build in productive relationship or collide in calamitous disaster. It happens in music all the time. For every boy genius or traveling Wilburys, shout out boy genius, there is a velvet revolver or super heavy. I strongly encourage Googling those last two if you enjoy a good, oh, what were they thinking moment. In the case of Spider-Man, the supergroup, as you probably know, was Julie Taymor and U2. Not all of U2, to be clear, but just the two most pretentious, fervent, and humorless members of the band. So surely that'll help when you are adapting for the stage the zippiest and most joyful and youth-oriented of superhero stories. For those who don't know me, yes, I'm being sarcastic. These are not people who needed to do Spider-Man. Not people who are driven by a fervent desire to see justice done to this iconic character. Instead, they were inspired, according to the New York Post, by a flippant comment made by Andrew Lloyd Webber thanking rock musicians for leaving theater alone. Is there anything less inspiring than art prompted by multimillionaires having a fight? 
Nieces and nephews of Julie Taymor will be cashing Lion King checks 50 years from now. And the internet tells me that the least rich member of U2 is drummer Larry Mullins, who is worth $350 million. So again, these are not people who needed to do Spider-Man. Arguments could be made that all three of these folks are geniuses, right? Or at least visionaries. And all three have been responsible for making millions of people happy. I vividly remember the first time I saw The Lion King on stage. It was at a theater in Hampton Roads, Virginia. And when the amazing opening procession started, I was blown away. Gobsmacked, you might say, even. Who had ever seen such a parade of costuming brilliance and functional theater magic? Not me, that's for sure. But also, my journalistic standards require that I say, hold on to your hats, that The Lion King isn't a great show. I'd tell you don't come at me, but I've written this at least twice before, so there's been ample time to do so in the past, and you missed your chance. I eventually got so tired of bad-mouthing The Lion King in print, I pawned the job over to my son. Google a cub take on The Lion King style weekly if you want to see the results. For all her grand visionary brilliance, I don't know that coherence and compelling plotting are Tamor's strong point. And as for you two, I mean, I love them. I literally love them. I've listened to Octung Baby more than any other non-children's album. That's not Stop Making Sense. But you kind of get the impression that they believe their own legend at this point, right? Their gig in Vegas is getting raves, but even that residency is emblematic of the problem. They are a corporation, an enterprise, a phenomenon. Do you expect these guys to sit down and break down the beats of a scene? The arc of a story, the integration of a score into a coherent plot? Maybe I'm not giving them credit, but in interviews, Bono talked about Spider-Man incorporating elements of Rilke, William Blake, Wings of Desire, Roy Roy Lichtenstein, I can't even say the name, and the Ramones. I think that kind of solves the mystery of what went wrong, right? The pretension is right there out in the open. Development on Spider-Man started in 2002 with a deal between producer Tony Adams and Marvel. Adams was the one that got Bono and the Edge involved. At this point, U2 is in a weird spot. Their 1997 album Pop was something of a flop. They went all hands on deck in the promotional push for their next album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, in 2000. You'll read lots of quotes about them reapplying for the job of best band in the world. So that album did better than pop, largely because of this song. In return for grace, it's a beautiful day. But even so, U2 is watching their core audience age, and we're starting to think creative thoughts about expanding the franchise. Theater would be perfect, I'm sure they thought. I mean, they wrote songs that had elements of story in them, right? What could go wrong? Quick aside, go ahead and ask anyone who has ever tried to write a coherent score for a musical What Can Go Wrong? Or better than that, go watch Tick, Tick, Boom about Jonathan Larson trying to do just that. It's hard freaking work, even for a pair of geniuses. The U2 crew suggested that Tamar direct. I expect because they thought a theater vet would guide them. But you think that she's going to urge them to go smaller? Uh, yeah. By 2005, the Dream Team had assembled, but Adams suffered a stroke and died. Absolutely tragic. No question. Nothing to take lightly. But also, maybe an indication that some reconsideration is warranted? By 2009, the production is stalled and is out of money. Some originally slated stars, like Evan Rachel Wood and Alan Cumming, have dropped out. 
Bono makes some calls and money starts flowing again. Ha! Previews start in November 2010, but already people are smelling something fishy and not in a good way. You can read all about what happened next. The production overruns, the injuries, the previews that went on longer than any other show in history. 182 previews in total, to be exact. It would have been six months of previews, except the whole enterprise shut down completely for a month amongst all the madness. I guess I could talk about that a little bit more. I mean, I could bring in quotes like the one from Alan Cumming saying, Jesus Christ, talk about dodging a bullet there. The relentless jokes about the production on late night talk shows. And at Goblin and Green, we specialize in assisting clients who have sustained injuries while working at or attending the Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dog. But it was really all shooting fish in a barrel territory by that time. Let's instead go back to March of 2011. I know the specifics of when I went to see Spider-Man because I wrote about it. Not in March, but a few months later. I scored this really sweet fellowship spending two weeks in Los Angeles at the end of the summer with a bunch of other freelance writer theater nerds covering back-to-back fringe festivals. There were almost 30 of us, and many folks were from the Northeast. New York, New Jersey, Philly. Several had seen Spider-Man, either the version that was running in previews like I did, or the surgically reconstructed revision that emerged when the production officially opened on June 14th. So I know you know this, but it's worth reiterating for the record, theater nerds want theater to be good. We want it to soar, shake people up, change lives. It's part of why we love it. And we tried to love Spider-Man. We really did. One of my new pals wrote, it expanded my idea of what a musical can look like. One was very disheartened by the changes made from the preview version that she had seen. She said, self-referential, self-depreciating jokes added to the script seemed cruel to all those involved with the production. She said, they added cheap in-jokes that just got cheaper laughs. For our viewing, my son and I got seats in the mezzanine, center section, on the aisle about three rows back. He was a fan of comics, but skewed more toward the anime and manga realm. We had watched our share of superhero movies together by then, and he had already developed a keen, pre-teen sense of what was fresh and original. You know, like the first Iron Man movie, for instance, and what was a little less than fresh and original, like um, the second Iron Man movie. He had already seen several Broadway shows, so just the grandeur of a Broadway house wasn't going to impress him. Even so, I think we both got a little jazzed when the show started, in part because it was loud. I mean, seriously, loud. Maybe not rock concert loud, but the sound folks were not shying away from the U2 of it all. And we had not come to see a delicate little drama. We wanted to be rocked. But pretty quickly, things got weird. There's this spider character right from the jump called Arachne. She's the Greek goddess of the weavers. And so now we're already delving into something pretty obscure. There's also this kind of hiccup with the songs. They all sound kind of like U2 outtakes. And the slow songs have a way of turning into anthemic battle cries instead of insightful revelations of character. Who would have foreseen that? After the Arachne bit, the story beats are completely familiar from the comics or the movies or any of the myriad other manifestations of this intellectual property. But then there was the moment, the moment that I, my son, and I expect everyone in the theater was waiting for. After discovering his powers, Peter Parker starts swinging. And I wish I could do an Irish accent because Jesus, Mary and Joseph, it was amazing. 
Seeing a real-life human fly through the air, insanely fast with seeming abandon, it was bonkers. And it wasn't a couple little swooshes from one side of the theater to the other. It was an extended interlude of joyous abandon, complete with rollicking music, crisscrossing spotlights, the whole works. On one of the swings, Spider-Man, or more specifically Reeve Carney, the actor who played him, zips up to the mezzanine railing, lands about 10 feet away from where my son and I are sitting, and then turns to look over the stunned crowd. Seeing my son a few rows away, he gives him a little salute, turns, and then jumps off the freaking railing to take another swing. You can say what you want about the rest of the show. There's an introduction of a whole string of Spider-Man villains in the second act called The Sinister Six. It's accompanied by one of the more entertaining songs, A Freak Like Me Needs Company. If you're looking for a night out on the town, you just found me. But it's followed by each villain getting dispatched almost immediately. There's the weird choice to have Peter Parker quit web-swinging by giving his Spider-Man costume to J. Jonah Jameson, his, like, nemesis. And the completely bonkers and indecipherable ending with Arachne and the worst song of them all, Turn Off the Dark. I am the queen of dreams, banished to a shadow prison. But I've watched and waited as your powers have... No, 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 no. gotta stop it. It's just too torturous. So... Spider-Man would soldier on. The production would soldier on. There were some promising signs. The show took in almost $3 million in ticket sales the first week of January 2012, the highest single week gross of any show in the history of Broadway. But with weekly running costs of $1.3 million, it was going to take a long time selling at that level to make back $75 million. By late 2013, Turn Off the Dark was falling deeper into the red, pulling in less than a million bucks a week. The last performance was January 4th, 2014, and that was that. There were rumblings about the show getting a revival in Vegas, but that never happened. This cash-shredding monster that had grabbed so much attention eventually dissipated, kind of like fog. Reeve Carney did all right. He'd eventually wind up originating the role of Orpheus in Hadestown. In fact, as I record this, he's just about to leave that production after something like six years with the show. It's easy to try and forget the whole thing as some embarrassing freak show gone awry. My son says he doesn't remember much about the show at all. But Turn Off the Dark will always have an odd, special place in my memory, consisting mainly of a man in spandex appearing suddenly on a treacherous ledge in front of me, my son's soft gasp in response, a quick salute, and then a leap into thin air. You can read recaps of these episodes and more information on some of Broadway's longest running shows at my website, chasingphantom.net. There are links to all the podcast episodes and write-ups about all the shows and YouTube links. Um, I hope you will check it out. The theme song for Chasing Phantom is written by Mason Timberline. If you have any comments or questions or concerns about this podcast, please reach out to timbertodpods at gmail.com. That's timbertodpods at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and you'll hear from me again in two weeks. Bye.